Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. I'm joined by a very special guest today. Matt Luft is here. Hello, Matt. Hello, Nick. Thanks for having me on. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the emergency department. I know a lot of people on this uh, who are listening to the show are thinking about EMS, but a big component of EMS that we don't always talk about is going to be the emergency department. Obviously, I'm a little bit spoiled because I can just go home in my living room and talk about the EMS and ED experience, um, but not everyone has that chance. So what we want to do is bring somebody like Matt on the show and have the ability to get a look into what they experience. So Matt, if you don't mind, you want to just tell us a little bit about kind of how did you get involved in um, EMS and the ED and how did you end up getting where you are today? Sure. So my background, I went to UVM um, back in the early 2000s. I ran with UVM Rescue for about four years. And I was, uh, my background was really in environmental science and environmental education. And um, I'd worked as an outdoor educator and then decided I needed a career path that I could support a family on. (laughs) So I started working in the emergency department as a tech and to get a sense for the different roles in medicine and to try to figure out something to do career-wise. I was thinking the PA route as a mid-level provider. And what I found is that I really enjoyed the bedside care that the nursing staff gave. And I went back to school, uh, tech program at VTC, and uh, I've worked in the emergency department since. That's awesome. And I, I got to give a little nod to you. I really appreciate you coming from EMS and being in the emergency department. Um, I think we talked a little bit about this earlier, just that that kind of unspoken knowledge that someone else has done some EMS time, you can see it in the providers. And I highly recommend those of you who are interested in nursing school, go to your local rescue squad and at least at a minimum, do a couple ride alongs and just kind of see where they're coming from. So I I have to say I was a, I was a super B. (laughs) (laughs) Super B. Uh, I stayed as a, an entry level EMT for the majority of my, uh, my ambulance ride career. Um, and I went up to the, what was the IO3 standard? Um, and, but I, I never worked clinically as an intermediate. So, uh, in the emergency department, I was using those skills like IV starts, thinking about things like breathing treatments and basic meds. Uh, but I never used those clinically on the ambulance, but that perspective of kind of making snap judgments about sick or not sick, thinking about, um, the, the process of, mechanism of injury, of uh, getting a good history, getting a good physical in a kind of compact time, that has paid off uh, in spades in my my nursing career. Yeah, we, we actually have a newer guy that's on our crew, and he's from a busy urban department down south, but he didn't do a lot of EMS. And I remember we went to this trauma call we were just talking about the other day, and it felt like he was maybe a little bit spun out on, you know, the decision-making process. And, um, and I was communicating to him some of the experience I've had from working on the interstates where you see those high mechanism wrecks. And I know you can concur. There's definitely some wrecks where you pull up and, you know, the car looks like a ball of spaghetti and you, whether the patient's fine or not, you're pretty much like, all right, let's go. Like, because we don't need to wait for the body to compensate, to decide that they're sick. You can tell if you have a, you know, 4,000 pound vehicle going 85 miles an hour and it comes to an abrupt stop to the point where the patient is uh, forcibly removed from the vehicle and lying on the side of the roadway, you can anticipate there's probably something that's going to be wrong just based on the forces. The the other piece of that is taking a nurse that is new to the ER from, say, a med surge background 
and taking a nurse that comes with some EMS experience, the first time you take EMS report from an ambulance service and they're describing those mechanism of injury questions, or you have someone that comes directly through the through the waiting room that you hasn't had EMS contact and you're talking about you know, how fast the car was going, if they're wearing a seatbelt, what kind of damage there was, did they spiderweb the windshield, uh, were, were they ejected from the vehicle? Those are questions that a med surge nurse, you know, someone that's worked at the bedside may not know, but some of the EMS experience, it's just, it's right there. They don't even have to think about it. Exactly. I, I remember we had a, an intoxicated guy get hit by a car, a pedestrian get hit by a car in one of the towns I was working in. Um, and one of the really heads up things I saw from the experience provider that was with me was he's like, you take care of the patient. I'll be right back. And he goes up and he walks to the car that had its hazards on, walks around the front of the truck and takes a picture. And there's like a man sized dent in the front of the truck. And that's something because the truck was probably 50 feet away. We probably would never have known. And this guy was, you know, he was intoxicated. So he's like, oh, I'm fine. I'm all right. I'm whatever. And that was a point where that provider was like, all right, let's go to the hospital. And the doctor's like, man, he seems pretty good. And then that provider was able to show him that picture and be like, look, he dented the engine compartment of a F-150. So like something hit him pretty good. And just the, the thought of going and looking at that mechanism and recording it to the point where you can actually like demonstrate that with a visual, what they experienced was huge. Uh, uh, Something I really like seeing as uh, a member of the ER team is those, those pictures for mechanism. Uh, It truly is a picture is worth a thousand words. We had a bad wreck off of the interstate last week. And one of the responding, uh, it was actually a nurse that was in a passing ambulance. He showed me a picture of the wreck and it, it looked like a non-survivable accident. And that gave us a, a good sense of the, forces that were delivered to the patient that was transported to our department. Yeah. And I think one of the benefits that we have in fire-based DMS that we don't always have in other agencies is the fact where if I go to a wreck like that, I can look at the tower guy or the engine guy and be like, Hey, take a picture of that and send it to the truck phone before I get to the hospital where I can just focus on the patient and they can, you know, they can do their thing. They can put down their kitty litter, speedy drive, take a photo and send it up to me where I can kind of do, you know, walk and chew gum. Whereas you know, the days where, you know, I was on Colchester and you're running by yourselves, you might not have a, you know, a fire crew available to do that to you, or they might not have the truck phone number. It's not as integrated. So my EMS time was almost pre-cell phone and certainly pre-cell phone cameras, the yeah. early 2000s. <laughs> but I was fortunate to work in a system that had fire-based backup. So we, UVM at the time was primary into the South Burlington. We were the second truck into Burlington. It was before A2, yeah. Rescue 2. Yeah. And uh, we always had an engine company. It didn't matter if you were going into uh, one of the old folks' homes and you needed an extra set of hands getting someone down a set of stairs or you were on the side of the highway. Um, we, we were also dispatching heavy rescue to every single car accident. So yeah, things yeah. have changed a little bit since I was on the bus. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I my first ambulance job ever when I was still um, like a young buck, they had cameras in the, in the truck. Like you would have a little camera, a a real, not a phone camera for those of you that are listening and you don't remember those, like you would actually have a camera and you'd actually go like get the footage developed. Like we used to have one of those in the truck. It was old. We never used it, but it was there. Yeah. I think that that's for like evidence collection. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Something. I mean, I remember one guy training me and be like, yeah, so you have this camera. If you ever have a bad wreck, take a picture. So the doctor can, I was like, I don't know. Let me put it next to the mass trousers. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's going to be right there. So 
So let's just start with something really basic. So obviously you work in the emergency department. What is an emergency department designed for? So the the ER is a bit of a catch-all. We certainly see the emergency cases, you know, folks with terrible trauma, with strokes and heart attacks. But in a a modern system, we see everybody. Um, In many ways, we are... We provide a, a kind of social safety net for our community, and we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every holiday, every pandemic. And if you walk through the door, you come in by ambulance, we have a responsibility to care for you. And we certainly prioritize care to those with life-threatening illness and injury, but we will see every single person that comes through the door. And we have a systematic process that allows us to triage people for kind of who needs the most resources at any time. And that is at the bedside from EMS report and then through a sister kind of a system of history, physical exam, vital signs. But also as people come through the, the front door, they meet a triage nurse and those same things happen. And we ask them kind of why they're presenting to the hospital. Then we have to make some kind of judgment decisions about how we allocate resources to their care. Yeah, and I, I think it's definitely a good point to focus on that every patient that comes in the ED gets a full set of vital signs and at least a discussion with a healthcare provider, you know, before they get that triage, right? Yes. So if you say so you walk through the the front door of the emergency department, right now you meet an EMT or a nurse who does a uh, basically a COVID screening and they ask you about respiratory illness, fever, sore throat, that kind of thing. We make a decision based on that short interview, whether we need to take isolation precautions in your care. And um, they are treated the same way, but with um, a little bit more protection for staff and other other patients. Uh, After that, they are registered and then they're seen by a nurse. And as part of that initial triage, there's some medical questioning history of their illness, of their injury, some basic physical exam. Say you're there for an ankle injury. We might take your shoe off and look at your ankle, do some physical exam, check for circulation to your toes and such. And then we check vital signs of heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, blood oxygen level. Um, And based on that history, that physical, those vital signs and the reason for your presentation, you come in with substernal chest pain, that's a higher priority than someone that comes in with, you know, mild belly pain that they've had for a couple hours. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I think one of the things as an EMS crew, I try to do is get that full picture of the patient as best I can. It's a little tough where I work now. We've talked about that, like warp speed medicine of, you know, the four or five minute transport, maybe you're going a half a mile, it can be tough to really get a thorough assessment of them. Uh, My goal is always a complete set of vitals uh, to the best of my ability, a good idea of what the chief complaint is, whether they agree with that complaint or not, what they're presenting the most with, um, and then any sort of interventions on life threats is, is what I prioritize pre-hospitally. So I've heard you discuss in the past that kind of uh, spidey sense of sick, not sick. Yeah. And what I use is a, a teaching opportunity with new staff to the ER. I'll say when you see an ambulance roll through the department, Almost every head that's every nurse, every tech, every doc that's sitting at their desk charting, kind of catching up, they'll almost always look up, kind of prairie dog over, look at the patient, 
and go back to what they're doing or stand up and like, Ooh, I'm going to follow them into a room. And it's that across the room assessment, which I like to distill down to the pediatric assessment triangle. And it's really, and you use it on every single patient. It's not just kids. Oh yeah. And it is your general appearance, kind of how you look, your work of breathing, kind of how you are ventilating and perfusion to skin. And those three things, like if someone's, you know, sitting up, happy, smiling, looks great, you're probably just going to sit at your desk. But if they are looking anxious and gray and breathing like a guppy and they're, you know, sweating bullets, hey, that that's someone who probably needs some meaningful intervention and needs it soon. So I'm going to go help out with their care. Yeah, I try to I try to clue in some of our we have a lot of young providers right now that don't have a lot of EMS experience. Um, and even myself, I'm not that much of a veteran. But what I try to instill in them is picking up on those scenes around them, just having that situational awareness. You know, we had a driver recently, you know, we have this guy in VTAC in the back of the ambulance and we're putting defib pads on and the driver decides to start transporting code two to the hospital and sitting at a red light. You know, and we had to poke our head through and be like, hey, come on, man, we've got to step it up. Let's rock and roll. And this is not an easy three. Like, yeah, let's and, burn some diesel. Exactly. And so we had we had that discussion when we got to the hospital. It's like, listen, you know, not for nothing, but, you know, touch the ball, like look in the back. The guys, you know, you don't need to be a paramedic to know that, like, if you got three providers and a captain back there putting defib on a guy like something's wrong. Like it, it, it's not belly pain if we're doing that, like something is going on. It, it, I've heard from staff like but you didn't sound excited. I'm like, well, if I'm freaking out, we have lost the initiative. Yeah, exactly. We, we hopefully even through that, you were calm, collected, cool. You're providing the care that needs to be provided, but he should know that it, it's time to go, go. Yeah. I think, I think you're similar in, in me, the way that the more intense the call is, the shorter and more concise my directions become like to the point where if I have someone really sick, I'm like, we need to go to the hospital right now. Uh, I had, I was describing, uh, someone asked me at, how do you look when you get really excited in a, like a sick patient's room? I said, I get really polite. I get super direct, like very intense. Be like, Nick, I need you to do this now. Thank you. And one of our new resident staff, one of our junior physicians said, you know, Matt's really the nicest to me when things are going really poorly. I was like, yeah, that, that probably checks out. <laughs> yeah, it's tough, too. We've talked about this on the show before is like um, there's that old that fire analogy. Like, so the first line goes as goes the rest, you know, and and it really is true. And we talked about this in one of the other podcasts is you can tell a lot by a provider about how they deal with an opiate overdose. I'm talking about like the banging carotid artery, not breathing, gray, tachycardic, low SpO2 sat. The good providers can walk in there immediately seamlessly grab the BVM, start ventilating the patient, bring that up, attach it to oxygen, get them all stabilized, relax, take a deep breath, instruct someone to get IV access, titrate your night, your, your Narcan therapy, get them responsive breathing. Like they can slowly move through that process, you know, but efficiently and quickly provide the interventions. And their, their tone of voice is very calm. It's like, all right, let's get the BVM. We're going to attach it to oxygen. And I've been on other calls where, you know, they unzip the first in bag and they dump it upside down in somebody's bathroom and you're like yo like hang on a second like what is going on and they're like dragging them out by their ankle and they're trying to do a finger stick and it's like just let's breathe and fix the life threat let's take a deep breath and when you have these 
new and experienced people or, you know, for you, if you have a new tech or a new nurse or a, you know, you know, a training nurse or something like that on a preception and you're walking in there like, you know, get this now, get this now. What are you doing? Give me that. Give me that. And now all of a sudden you're like, you're ripping the bag and then the, the auction cords getting pulled out of the wall. Like that doesn't help anything go smooth. Uh, I like to say we, that the, the physician or the supervisor in the room often sets the tone for the care that's being delivered. And if you have a physician or a primary nurse that is calm and giving simple directions and seems like, oh, we do this every day, then everyone else is like, oh, yeah, we, you know what? We actually do do this every yeah. day. This, yeah. this is our job. Let's pretend we've done it before. This isn't a big deal. These are things that we can make meaningful interventions on. Let's focus on the basics. Oh, let's make sure the airway's open. Oh, they're not ventilating. Let's ventilate for them. Let's put them on the monitor. Oh, let's get IV access. Like these are all things we can do. Simple directions, stay calm, move through it. Yep, exactly. I think one of my favorite doc stories is my very first intubation ever in the clinical and the ED was with Dr. McNamara. And we get the, you know, we get the glide scope in, we get, uh, you know, I get a good view, I get everything ready to go. And she's leaning over looking at the screen and she just goes like very calmly, the whole room's watching me. She's like, I see the vocal cords, do you? <laughs> and I was like, yes, I do. She's like, very good. Just, just push the tube right there. You know, and like, that was just her way of communicating to me. Like now it's time to intubate the patient. Like she was just very calm. You know, I thought it was so interesting that she did that. You know, she didn't try to like grab my hands or like push me out of the way. Just like, I see the vocal cords. Do you? Yes. And in terms of a learning experience for you, that's exactly what you needed because it, it kind of pushed you through that first image, that first look that you had. And we're like, oh, I, I do have this. Yeah. It's confirmed by the physician. I, I can move on. I can perform the skill that I've practiced a hundred times as opposed to what do you see? What do you see? Are you ready? Can you do it? Do you need the tube? Yeah. Like, that's not helpful. But, I know. Oh, look, we... We visualize the airway. Yeah. <laughs> Here's your tube. I know. It's very relaxing. It's like it's verbal really, volume. It's real helpful. It's awesome. I love working for people like that. You know, you know, you see these nurses or docs or whoever, and they'll come in and they'll say, this is going wrong. And the person will be like, okay, then get the BVM. You know, and it's like, all right, like there is a solution to every problem. And if there's not a solution, we can start working on one, you yep. know, and we talk about that a lot. So we talked a little bit about the triage categories. Um, let's talk a little bit about how your specific department is set up. So what type of resources would you see in the different areas of the department and kind of who goes to those areas? So we we're, we're the largest emergency department in the state of Vermont and we are an academic medical center, which means we have uh, consult services from almost every service within medicine at our disposal. Uh, our specific emergency department is set up into an acute care and general treatment side. So our acute care is your chest pain, shortness of breath, bad car accidents, bad traumas. And general treatment is they tend to be more private rooms and some of them are specialty. So we have a space for orthopedics for reductions and such. We have a space for uh, that we might put abdominal pain or GYN patients into. We have a psychiatric area. And those specialty rooms allow us to provide more specialized care. The acute care is uh, a little less than 20 beds. And we have um, an isolation space. We have, for, say, respiratory illness, we have a pediatric resuscitation area, and we have a trauma bay, which has two beds. 
And those rooms have the specialty equipment that you need to take care of those kind of unique population subsets. Yeah. I think uh, I've kind of learned the algorithm a little bit where if I hear a room number reflected back to me as I'm either coming in or as the, as the communication center is letting me know, I can start to kind of hypothesize if the charge nurse or the ED staff is kind of concurring with what I'm thinking. And and that's obviously on a day when you're not overwhelmed. If you're overwhelmed, I mean, it's kind of a free for all for the most part, I would imagine. But So as a charge nurse, I've certainly placed a patient into a room from my kind of simple EMS report into one side or the other. Um, and we kind of drag them in our, our electronic health record. And then I'll get a phone call from the comp center and be like, actually bfd thinks this patient's sick all right well let's let's see what's open in acute care (laughs) yeah and i i definitely can tell sometimes if the information's made it from me to the charge nurse because for example if i if i've given someone narcotics for pain and they have iv access and fluids hanging and they're supine immobilized in a seat collar and we get sent to the waiting room it kind of tells me that maybe that information didn't get you know, relayed over. So one thing that I've always done that usually works pretty good is I'll just, you know, walk over to you guys and just be like, Hey, just say, no, you guys, you want the waiting room. Is that right? Like just to make sure. And sometimes you might be like, yeah, no beds. And like, okay. And other times you might be like, wait a minute, like fentanyl and a C collar. I did not hear fentanyl and a C collar. I heard ankle injury. And you're like, well, just checking what you want. That would be an open ankle injury. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Ankle by ankle, we mean tibia and fibula. So (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, so let's talk a little bit about the alerts. So these are something that took a super long time for me to figure out. Back in the day when I started, we had sheets that we had to read, we had to go through and they when I when I first got started, they used to make us read the sheet and then tell you tell the hospital what alert it was based on the sheet findings. Then they transitioned back to you just tell us the findings and we'll make the decision on it. And now it's kind of this a little bit of a mixture of the two. We kind of try to paint as clear of a picture as we can, and then it seems like the emergency department and the charge nurse and the doctors kind of come to that realization. So let's use like trauma for an example, a trauma alert. So trauma alerts in our hospital, again, this is specific to our institution, but I think there's probably a very similar system throughout most most hospital systems. And we have a green and red based on severity. Green is... um, you know, lower mechanisms, it might be a fall from a certain height, it might be a gunshot wound, but proximal to the knee or the elbow, it might be um, a helicopter transfer from scene, but with vital signs. Um, red is going to be fall from a greater height, gunshot wound or penetrating trauma to the abdomen or thorax, uh, GCS lower than a certain amount. Folks that receive blood pre-hospitally to maintain vital signs, uh, helicopter from the scene with no vitals. And then we further stratify by adult and pediatric. And the mechanism changes a little bit for peds, and it it has to do with the uh, kind of specific uh, pathophysiology of children. When we alert a trauma in our department, you get an attending physician which is one of our supervising physicians in the ER. You get um, our nursing and tech staff, and you get a different mix of nurses and techs based on the severity. But at the basics, you have a primary nurse, a secondary nurse who's at the bedside, and then one or two tech staff in our techs are EMTs. So they're doing things like starting IVs, setting up our rapid infuser for blood product, running pneumatic tourniquets, putting the patient on a monitor, 
And then we work with our surgery team for our assessments. And they are the kind of burn shock trauma specialists. And what they do is come in and do a detailed head to toe physical exam. And then they do some interventions like chest tubes or wound debridement or um, might have orthopedics doing a, a like big fracture reduction at the bedside. Breathing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the benefit is that we have a, a choreograph system and beforehand we have a huddle so everyone involved in that patient's care gets together. We define roles. We know this is kind of gets back to that idea of crew resource management that you've spoken about in the past where everyone has a, a specific role. We know who's doing each job and we, we trust that that responsibility is taken care of. And then good closed loop communication where a, a good trauma that's being run should be actually quite quiet. Shouldn't be super busy. There should be a... Uh, usually a, a trauma resident that's doing their exam and calling that out so that it can be recorded. And then someone calling out vital signs, but there's almost a very simple back and forth communication, even though there might be a dozen people in the room. And one thing I've noticed over my time transporting UVM over the last, you know, handful of years here is the transition to how quiet the room has become, which is a really good testament to how you guys have done some great changes and, you know, that timeout procedure. I definitely remember um, transporting a bunch of years ago, you know, we'd bring in a bad car wreck and it was like, it was chaos. It was, you know, no one could hear me. I had the same question multiple times. And part of that was me not being as confident as the lead EMS provider coming in the room. I think one of the most intimidating things you can experience as an EMS provider is that red trauma report to the attending trauma physician or whoever it is. That can be pretty daunting. You really have to command the room in that first few seconds to get the information to everyone clearly and concisely. And that was really new for me as a, you know, as a teenager. So for EMS, as they arrive, they will probably be asked by the, the trauma resident who's supervising the resuscitation or supervising the room. Uh, can you give me your last set of vital signs, including highest heart rate and lowest blood pressure? And they may say, if your patient is stable, we'll take EMS report first and then transfer over to the bed. If the patient is unstable, so they're unresponsive, they have a dreadful airway, they have uh, their heart rate's really high, their blood pressure's really low, they have some, you know, terrible open chest wound. We might transfer first and then we'll give a, a very pared down EMS report using the MIST system, which you can probably speak to a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, one of the things I try to do when we have the trauma reports or anything like that is if there is something that critical, what I'll do personally, and I can't speak for a lot of other providers, is I'll give the critical, critical life threat right away and I'll pause and I'll wait until I hear someone say that they understood that or I see them start to take care of it. For example, I had a patient recently that was intubated and we were continuously suctioning them, just copious amounts of blood and vomit coming out of the airway and we're continuously suctioning them in between ventilations. And that was something where we got in, you know, I said, we've been continuously suctioning the airway. We have an ET tube and we've had desaturation when there's secretions and I'll just pause. 
And that way the, the RT and the docs can focus on that for a second and realize that that's the most critical thing. Because if I start talking about, you know, they're allergic to amoxicillin, they're from South Burlington, like those types of things are going to cloud their mind. And what I've learned from giving these reports is that the more information you give them, the more places that the doctors and the staff will start to go about like, what about this? What about that? Could it be this? Could it be that? And if I just say they don't have a patent airway and I just pause, everyone's focused on the airway because that's the key piece at the moment. And I know because I have the other information that the blood pressure is okay. This is the other thing. And I don't want to start giving them all that information to make it confusing. I want to see them at least verbalize that they heard me about the airway. And then if they start asking more questions, I go into the full thing. In the same way that EMTs are trained in this kind of stepwise assessment and intervention, our trauma docs are trained the same system. So this it's called ATLS, Advanced Trauma Life Support. And we do, we start with airway, breathing, circulation in the same way that EMS would. And being able to focus on threats to life, something within that ABC system is great for our staff to be able to know what to focus our first care on because that they we certainly do get ems reports sometimes where we are running through allergies and medications and past history and when the last time they ate was and when when the call went out and we had a 20 let's break this down to the really like give me the cliff notes version yeah one of the one of our uh hobbies that me and my partner on the ambulance have is obviously a lot of the times when the helicopters are coming in, they'll give report over the hospital radio. And so me and my partner love to listen to the the helicopter reports because generally speaking, you know, a helicopter medicine is the pinnacle of EMS pre-hospitally. It tends to be the most squared away people. They have the most training. They're the most hardcore. They fly all over the place, especially, you know, Dart One, HealthNet, those people, they have a lot of advanced training, a lot of experience, and they come from strong EMS backgrounds. So I love it because you'll turn up the radio when that report comes in, you'll hear them hail and you turn up the radio. And some of them, it's just like, it's just, it's just smooth as silk. They just get it right out, you know, innovative sedated. That's my favorite one. And it's like, oh man. And they just get it right across. And there's other times where we turn it up and uh, you'll hear like, the patient had a cheeseburger last night. He stated there was no cheese on the cheeseburger current. And then at the very end, uh, and we are doing compressions and you're like, what? <laughs> like, and I just, I love the the differences <laughs> that you can hear from all of these different crews. Um, and so that's always one of my little, you know, our, uh, hobbies when we're driving around is if we hear a helicopter report come in, we'll turn it up and it, good, good EMS report. That's, mm, it's real nice. It's awesome. Yeah, it's great. He, uh, his favorite one we ever heard was, you know, they were saying the patient's initials and obviously they try to use like an alphanumeric so you can hear yeah. it. And so it was like, uh, the initials are TW, uh, tortilla Wednesday. (laughs) Hey, it gets your point across, you know, what are you going to do? So I thought that was interesting. So yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, other things that we've talked about a little bit is trying to relay the mechanism to the doc. Sometimes our patients, especially in Burlington, I know, uh, we had a gunshot victim that from the time that they were shot and we were dispatched to the time they were moving to the OR was less than eight minutes just because we got on scene, we weren't really sure where the shooter was. It was literally throw them on a backboard, throw them in the back. We dumped a ladder, an engine, and an ambulance and zipped them up to the hospital. Code three, 1.4 miles. I got that memorized. And we always go to that location and get them right in, wheel them right down to room 10, put them on the bed. They say she's got multiple wounds to the chest, like surgeries, like she's deteriorating. Let's go. And they just like, literally that was it, you know? And, and, uh, 
what we try not to do is wait for the patient to decompensate because we can predict based on the mechanism that they're going to deteriorate. You know, if that, if that car is folded up or the, you know, the person has multiple gunshot wounds to the chest and their blood pressure is already starting to drop and their heart rates, you know, 160, 170, we can kind of predict that they're going to deteriorate. So there's really no reason for us in EMS to wait on scene and try to, you know, get a 24 gauge IV in the hand with someone that has two gunshot wounds to the chest. The, we're at kind of an interesting intersection of pre-hospital care in our district where we have added paramedics just within the last decade. And to see the increase in capability of intervention in the pre-hospital sense, uh, I think there was a kind of institutional resistance to that because there was a concern that there would be a delay in transport and I think what we have to realize is that in many times there may be a slight delay in transport, but not in care, and that our paramedics, our higher level providers are able to provide these kind of similar interventions to what would be we'd be able to initiate in the emergency department, but in the pre-hospital arena. And but still understanding when there's a kind of stay and play and a load and go and for short distance to transport known high mechanism. That's a patient that the, the, the best alpha you can put on there is the D for diesel. And you really just got to get them to the hospital. Oh, absolutely. And we, we talked about that in one of our last podcasts with Lieutenant Plouffe about, you know, time to the trauma center. And there's definitely a place for that. And I think at least in my experience, I try to be one of those good medics that knows when that is at play. When you roll up and the car is smashed and they're in their 80s and they're unresponsive, there's nothing that I'm going to do right there on the street necessarily that's going to make the biggest difference for them because ultimately if they have these internal injuries, they're going to need the OR. You know, trauma is a surgical disease is what we always say. Yeah, for sure. You know, and maybe I'm securing the airway en route, but if I'm a good solid medic and I've prepared myself, maybe I'm doing that en route. Maybe I'm getting them on the backboard, getting them in the truck, and maybe I'm intubating on the way to the hospital instead of lying on my belly in the cornfield trying to make this happen. Being able to realize that you can make those interventions uh, during your transport and uh, not delaying so that they are in the, in the hospital, in the trauma bay, can be seen by our physician staff and then prioritized to the OR, that that makes a big difference in that patient's outcome. We definitely try to do that. And even just stepping away from the trauma side, you know, thinking from more of a medical complaint, something like cardiac arrest is something I've seen a huge change in that with, realizing that, you know, you have a paramedic on scene, you can provide almost a full gamut of ACLS right there on their bathroom floor. And we know that moving these patients up and down the stairs, in and out of the elevator is going to disturb those shockable rhythms, those those rhythms that we can resuscitate. And sometimes the best outcome for them is to just wait a couple minutes, do good high quality CPR, administer those antiarrhythmics, defibrillate the shockable rhythms, get a pulse back, stabilize them, and then start moving to the hospital rather than trying to do this while we're, you know, doing 88 miles an hour on the off ramp. So I've certainly seen that change in my, you know, almost 20 years of emergency medicine that uh, we used to, and this is pre-paramedicine in our district and before we were doing uh, cardiac level interventions, even at the A level. And that has allowed our pre-hospital staff, our practitioners to provide, like you said, almost a full ACLS type treatment in the field. And 
we're trying to maintain coronary perfusion pressure, and that's uninterrupted CPR, giving you know epinephrine and other cardiac drugs as appropriate, and then just running through the algorithm. It's the same algorithm we'd use in the emergency department. And in terms of diagnostics, there's not a lot that we do in the ER that you can't do in the field. And in terms of interventions, there's not a lot that we can do in the ER that you can do in the field. The difference might, it may come down to ultrasound. It may come down to having access to pharmacy. It may come down to uh, some really higher level things. But in terms of patient outcome and survivability, the basics are coronary perfusion, antiarrhythmics, high quality CPR, defib when appropriate. Yeah. And those are things that you guys are, are doing in the field. Yeah. Yeah. And we do relatively frequently, you know, it's a high frequency um, procedure that we get comfortable with. I think this is something we've seen as a shift. And I know Lieutenant Ploof and Captain Genslinger talked about it is that old mentality of load them on the backboard, non-rebreather, 15 liters per minute, code three to the hospital. Picked up sick, dropped off same. You know, yeah, exactly. One of my favorite uh, phrases I heard around the firehouse, like just recently, like six months ago, was uh, a code five transport. You ever heard of that? No. It's a <laughs> three for the patient, two for me, <laughs> code five. So anyway, I thought that was entertaining. But something as simple as, you know, I went to a call about a year ago, like a you know, a 22-year-old female patient in SVT, rate above 200, can't breathe, um, you know, blood pressure is okay, but just like that anxious, like, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, I can't get air, and, you know, and we're giving them oxygen, you know, we do vagal maneuvers, it doesn't do anything, um, and we administer adenosine, and, and literally as we're administering the adenosine, the engine officer opens the door and is like, what are you guys doing? Like, transport, transport, and he looks over and the monitor, you know, we slow that down. Goes flat for into, a second. Yeah, right. S- slows down. Nick, goes what into, did you do? I know, right. Goes into a sinus rhythm and she just takes this big breath like, I feel so much better. And like skin color, like pinks right up. Like the heart rate goes nice and slow. We cycle the blood pressure nice and great. Like, and uh, we're like, yeah, we're ready to go now. And just that, that difference between you could feel the tension between that 20 year guy who with that patient would have already been going 70 miles an hour up Pearl street to get him to the hospital. Whereas that's something where I can take a look and be like, I can fix that. Like I can take care of that. And in, in terms of intervention that what's good for the patient is taking the time to rely on your high-level pre-hospital care practitioners, trust their assessment and their interventions, give them five minutes to work, make their interventions, see if you have a a positive effect. In this case, you do. And then you can kind of ease up to the hospital. You're not putting the patient, those EMTs, the the public at risk, you know, zipping through downtown at 70 miles an hour. And... You have you have delivered uh, definitive care to that patient. I mean, she would much rather feel better now than feel better in 20 minutes when she gets up to the hospital and we do our triage and we get our meds and we get our pharmacist. We set up. You can do that now in the field. You know, certainly thinking about patient safety and you know uh, other effects, but that is appropriate high level care that's being delivered. Exactly. And that's one of the things they do a really good job of stressing in these programs we're going through now, the medic programs, is that stay and play or load and go. And there are some situations where um, they, they call it like forced to act is the word that we use. So for example, if I go to an individual in VTAC and their blood pressure is like 50 over 30, I have to cardiovert before we move them. 
we have to intervene. Like if that's, if that's a problem, if we think it's a cardiovascular cause and that's what's going on and they still have a pulse and all those other things, we're forced to act because they're actively suffering brain damage. They're in a lethal dysrhythmia. They're in an unstable heart rhythm. Those are like forced to act things. Whereas this individual, we can kind of slow down a little bit and we can have that internal dialogue and we can even to the point we can even communicate with the patient. I remember talking with that person, like, listen, these are the options we have. We can bring you to the hospital, administer oxygen and give you a fluid bolus and let you continue to be the way you are. If you're comfortable with that, because some people are really nervous about treatment said, you know, we have a medicine called the denazine, which is going to temporarily block that electrical activity and allow it to reset. Here's your EKG. I've made sure you don't have a history of WPW. We don't have any accessory pathways. These are these are the risks. These are the benefits. This is what I would do. And we can have those discussions with the patients because they are stable. Um, and that was something where the patient's like, I have SVT. I've been converted before. I know what this is. Like, I want to feel better now. I can't breathe. And it's like, okay. Uh, I think having that equity in medicine, providing the patient with the information that you have, kind of explaining your differential and your thought process, but also what interventions you have available and making them a part of that decision process. That's fantastic. We do that in the emergency department all the time. I hear our, our physicians, our supervising docs sit down with a patient and say, you know, I, I would like to admit you to the hospital for these reasons. I think that if you're really adamant about going home, that we have to come up with a safe plan. These would be the next steps I would take. And building the, the patient's own kind of feelings, concerns, judgments, history, and really their own decision into that process can be really empowering for them and give them a sense that they've made a contribution to their own healthcare. But it also feels like it, it gives them back some of the, uh, some of the power that they've lost in that, that situation. Absolutely. I'm huge on patient advocacy. And one of the things I always tell kind of the, some of the kind of newer generation that we see just because sometimes they can come in a little hot to some of these calls and the way they communicate with people, especially the patients we see all the time. And what I always remind them is, listen, it's emergency medical services, not emergency medical police. Like they don't call us to come there and bark orders at them about getting in the truck and doing this and doing that. You know, if you're a little old lady and you have low blood pressure and you're dizzy and you don't want to go to the hospital, I'm going to sit there and have a discussion with a long discussion with you about why I'm concerned. And I'm going to ask them what their plan is. And then we're going to go back and forth and come up. If they're stable, we're going to come up with a solution about, well, your son said he could come over. Let's get your son over here. And you don't mind if I wait for a little while till he gets here, right? I'm okay taking those little break sometimes just to make sure that the patient's getting what they need. You don't want to be too aggressive and have that old mentality of everyone goes to the hospital and you don't want to have that too liberal of an approach where you don't even take a blood pressure on an opiate overdose. You know, you got to kind of find that balance of everyone should feel comfortable. The people on the crew, the provider and the patient should all understand what's happening. It should have a good idea of what the um, projected outcome is going to be. I think taking the time to do you know, good history, good exams, some vital signs, and then integrate family into that process if you have to. And then also reaching out to your, your online medical direction and our being able to make a phone call, you know, you're on the edge, you, you want the patient to do one thing based on your concerns. It's okay to get that doc involved and have them be part of that conversation with you. Oh yeah. And one of the things I've noticed too, after building the trust with the medical directors is they take a lot of weight in what we say. So if I talk to you know, Doc George or something like that, and you know, there are very frequently are times where he, I'll call up and I'll talk to him about a patient and he'll just say, 
What do you think? What do you want to do? Like, as opposed to just giving old school is just vital signs, chief complaint, doctor tells you what to do, do whatever they tell you to do. That was the old school mentality. And now there are times where we have enough of a relationship where I'll be like, listen, this is what I'm seeing, blah, blah. And he'll be like, what do you think? And be like, I think he really needs to go to the hospital. Like, I'm really concerned about him. Like, he has tearing back pain in the center of his back. He has, you know, abnormal pulses in his upper and lower, you know, and his blood pressure is hovering at, you know, 100 over 50 with a heart rate of 160. Like, I think I'm worried that he has an aortic dissection. I am worried about him. And he'll have, and then, you know, sometimes they'll be even so great that they'll even talk to the patient right on the phone. And so like, with my older EMS education, it was, you are the, the eyes and ears of the physicians in the field yeah. and you are, but you also have to kind of be their brain yeah. because you're talking to them on the telephone yeah. and you're painting some picture, but that they get to a point where they, they appreciate your skill, your expertise, and they learn to trust you. And they're like, yeah, well, what do you need? And they're happy to help you facilitate that as needed. Yeah, exactly. And one of the ways, you know, maybe we'll do an episode on refusals one day, but one of the things that I find works really well with patients is having enough medical knowledge about the ED to advocate to your patient what they can do for them. For example, if someone has difficulty breathing and they don't want to go, I could say, listen, we don't have the ability to take any sort of lab values, you know, and this is something where if you have, uh, you know, low hemoglobin, low hematocrit, like you have some sort of electrolyte imbalance, those are only things that you're going to find out if you go to the emergency department, because we as EMS don't have the ability to rule those things out. So if we leave you, there's a very, you know, there's a risk that something bad might happen because I don't have a clear picture of everything that's going on that could cause this complaint. Yep. Uh, EMS paramedicine delivers a high level of care in the pre-hospital environment, but you have a limited pharmacopoeia. You're not doing advanced imaging and diagnostics. You don't have a lab at your disposal. And the reality is that you, you don't have the background training of a physician and that responsibility that the physician takes on when they take over that patient's care. Um, and it, it's reasonable to get folks to access that. We would love to see them in the emergency department so that, you know, we, we can, if they are fine, you know, give them a reassuring workup. You know, we don't always get the, all the answers, but we can say, you know, we've checked all of these boxes off for the really big, bad, scary things. You're not having the dissection, the PE, the heart attack. Sorry, you're having chest pain. Sometimes that can just be anxiety and you were shoveling snow yesterday and you haven't been doing a lot of that. Yeah. Me and my partner is one of our favorite go-tos when it comes to getting someone we think needs to go to go is, uh, you know, we've kind of been around on these ambulances long enough to kind of be a little more direct with patients. And we'll say, uh, you know, listen, sir, Mr. Earl, or whoever it is, you know, these ambulances in the city are running 6,000 calls a year. We are not in the business of making more work for anybody. I promise you, we're not going to sit here and try to talk someone and go into the hospital if they don't need to go. Trust me, we got enough people going, but I'm telling you right now, like I'm seeing runs of VTAC on your EKG, like this is serious. Like I've been doing this for a long time. I'm telling you, Eric and I, we've never talked someone into going that doesn't need to go. That's not our job. Yeah, we're, we're not in the business of bringing folks up there that don't need nope. to be there. No way. No. And I'm like, listen, sir, like, trust me on this. And that actually is a really effective approach. A lot of people think about that for a second. They're like, man, like this guy's a paramedic. He works on the ambulance. Like these guys are busy, busy. And he, they're taking, he's getting paid by the hour, yeah, whether right. I go up there or not. I know. And they're <laughs> sitting here on my couch telling me they really want to take me up, yeah. you know, and I'll, I'll barter with patients too. I'll be like, listen, 
how about this? You know, I won't even, if you don't want an IV, I won't give you an IV. However, if you, if you stop breathing, yeah, if you deteriorate, <laughs> like you let me do my medicine. Okay. Yep. You know, or I had a guy recently that had AFib RVR rate of like 170, 175, like blood pressure was kind of okay, you know, and he really didn't want, didn't want DILT, didn't want to slow down or at all. He's like, I just want to get it at the hospital. I don't want you to do anything. I'm, okay. I said, fair enough. But if your blood pressure starts dropping or you start developing other symptoms or you have difficulty breathing, like we need to have a discussion about treating you because I'm concerned, you know, he wasn't the picture of health. And I'm like, we need to at least be prepared to escalate to treatment if things change, you know, and that's a, that's an example of where I try to listen to what my patient wants. And even though I would rather just give them 10 milligrams of deltaism or whatever and just make it better, if they don't want that and they're okay where they're at or they're relatively stable, who am I to be EMS police to them? And you still have that safety net of being able to deliver those interventions. If yeah, and finding that middle ground of like, okay, I won't give you any deltaism right now if you don't want any, but at least let me get an IV. So if we have to, it'll be easier yeah. in the future, you know? I I'm concerned about your health and I want to do this in a safe manner. Yeah. I want to treat you safely. Yeah. And the best way to do that is to give me the safety net. Exactly. Exactly. And I'm big on that with seizures too. Anybody that's ever had a seizure with me in the ambulance, if it's a, if it's a seizure to the point where they, someone calls the ambulance or they call the ambulance, I, for one of the first things I do as I'm doing my assessment is like, let me get access on you. That way, if you seize again, I can admi immediately administer that med and do it more effectively. Yeah, I want to be able to take great care of you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right, Matt. Well, thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, any uh, last minute advice for people coming up through the field these days? No, Nick, thank you very much for having me on. Um, the reality is that if you're interested in medicine, like Nick said earlier, if you can get on some ride-alongs with an ambulance, I know that's that's tough right now with COVID, but things, things are starting to open back up a little bit. You can often reach out to the educators in your local emergency department and see if you can do uh, like a shadow shift. And then look at the career fields that are in medicine. I think EMS, nursing, PA, physician level, uh, they are all based in public service and taking care of people. And there's there's a space in there for anyone. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks, Matt. 